0: Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legal listening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. Hey there, just me today. I'm about to bring you the dissenting opinion in the Queen and J.A. If you want to hear what me and Zach thought about the case, or if you want to go listen to the majority's opinion, head on over to the previous episode. Enjoy! The reasons of Justices Binnie, LaBelle, and Fish were delivered by Justice Fish. It is a fundamental principle of the law governing sexual assault in Canada that no means no, and only yes means yes. K.D., the complainant in this case, said yes, not no. She consented to her erotic asphyxiation by the respondent, J.A., her partner at the time. The shared purpose was to render K.D. unconscious and to engage in sexual conduct while she remained in that state. It is undisputed that K.D.'s consent was freely and voluntarily given, in advance and while the conduct was still in progress. Immediately afterward, K.D. had intercourse with J.A. again, consensually, K.D. first complained to the police nearly two months later when J.A. threatened to seek sole custody of their two-year-old child. She later recanted. We are nonetheless urged by the Crown to find that the complainant's yes, in fact, means no in law. With respect, for those who are of a different view, I would decline to do so. The provisions of the Criminal Code regarding consent to sexual contact and the case law, including you and Chuck, relied on by the Crown were intended to protect women against abuse by others. The mission is not to protect women against themselves by limiting their freedom to determine autonomously when and with whom they will engage in the sexual relations of their choice. Put differently, they aim to safeguard and enhance the sexual autonomy of women and not to make choices for them. The Crown's position, if adopted by the court, would achieve exactly the opposite result. It would deprive women of their freedom to engage by choice in sexual adventures that involve no proven harm to them or others. That is what happened here. Adopting the Crown's position would also require us to find that cohabiting partners across Canada, including spouses, commit a sexual assault when either of them, even with the express prior consent, kisses or caresses the other while the latter is asleep. The absurdity of this consequence makes it plain that it is the product of an unintended and unacceptable extension of the criminal code provisions upon which the Crown would cause this appeal to rest. Lest I be misunderstood to suggest otherwise, I agree that consent will be vitiated where the contemplated sexual activity involves a degree of bodily harm or risk of fatal injury that cannot be condoned under the common law or on grounds of public policy. Asphyxiation to the point of unconsciousness may well rise to that level, but the contours of this limitation on consent have not been addressed by the parties, nor has the matter been previously considered by this Court. For procedural reasons as well, the issue of bodily harm must be left for another day. I agree as well that prior consent affords no defense when it is later revoked or where the ensuing conduct does not comply with the consent given. Applying these principles here, I would dismiss the appeal. Finally, I think it helpful to set out succinctly the issues on this appeal. According to the Chief Justice, the question is whether an unconscious person can qualify as consenting to sexual activity. With respect, that is not the question at all. No one has suggested in this case that an unconscious person can validly consent to sexual activity. Rather, the question is whether a conscious person can freely and voluntarily consent in advance to agreed sexual activity that will occur while he or she is briefly and consensually rendered unconscious. My colleague would answer that question in the negative. I would answer that question in the affirmative, absent a clear prohibition in the criminal code, absent proven bodily harm that would vitiate consent at common law, and absent any evidence that the conscious partner subjected the unconscious partner to sexual activity beyond their agreement. In this case, J.A. engaged with K.D. in sexual activity to which K.D. freely consented while conscious. The Chief Justice would nonetheless convict J.A. of sexual assault, a serious crime. I oppose this result. In my respectful view, it is unwarranted as a matter of statutory interpretation prior decisions of the court, or considerations of policy. And it is wrong on the facts of this case. That is what divides us. The rest is commentary. The Chief Justice has set out the relevant facts fully and fairly, and I have nothing to add in that regard. This is an appeal as of right by the Crown. In the absence of leave on any other grounds, none was sought by the Crown, our jurisdiction is therefore limited to the question of law alone upon which there was a dissent in the Court of Appeal. That question is set out this way in the Crown's Notice of Appeal. As a matter of law, can a person consent in advance to sexual activity expected to occur when the person is either unconscious or asleep? In this light, three defining aspects of this appeal merit special emphasis. First, as the Chief Justice has noted, The Court of Appeal found, unanimously, that the evidence that was led at trial was simply not capable of supporting a finding that the complainant did not consent on a standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Accordingly, this finding is not open to dispute before us. Second, the Court of Appeal found, again unanimously, that there was no basis for a finding of fact that the sexual conduct that occurred did not comply with the consent given by K.D., Speaking for herself and Appeal Justice Durands, Appeal Justice Simmons held quote, The trial judge's conclusions regarding the sexual assault charge were premised, at least in part, on the trial judge's finding that the complainant did not, at any time, consent to anal penetration of any kind. As I have explained in my opinion, the record in this case is not capable of supporting that finding a fact. End quote and Appeal Justice Laforme made clear that he agreed with the thorough and persuasive analysis of Appeal Justice Simmons, except only for her conclusion that there is no basis for holding that as a matter of general principle, a person cannot legally consent in advance to sexual activity expected to occur while the person is either unconscious or asleep. Third, the trial judge found that the asphyxiation causing unconsciousness in this case did not constitute bodily harm. This finding was set aside by the Court of Appeal, once more unanimously, on the ground that the trial judge had applied the wrong legal test in concluding as she did. Largely for reasons of procedural fairness, the Court declined to revisit the Crown's submission that the complainant's asphyxiation constituted bodily harm, vitiating her consent under the common law. The record as we have it affords us no sufficient basis for revisiting the issue. As I mentioned earlier, whether asphyxiation causing unconsciousness will vitiate consent therefore remains an open question to be answered when the need next arises. In short, then, we are urged on this appeal to find that J.A. committed a sexual assault on K.D., his partner at the time, by engaging with her in sexual activity to which she had agreed in advance, and agreed again while that activity was still in progress without causing her bodily harm and without exceeding the scope of her consent. In the Crown's submission, J.A.'s guilt on this serious crime can be grounded in the brief intervening period of unconsciousness that occurred during his sexual encounter with K.D., before and after which K.D. neither subjectively experienced nor affirmatively communicated a revocation of her prior consent. Essentially, the Crown contends that J.A. committed a sexual assault on K.D., because prior consent to sexual touching that is anticipated to occur during a period of unconsciousness is precluded by the criminal code and by this court's decision in Ewan Chuck. Alternatively, the Crown argues that Katie's consent should be declared invalid at common law on the basis of public policy. For the reasons that follow, I find neither argument persuasive. I begin with a consideration of the provisions of the criminal code upon which the Crown relies. The starting point in determining whether the complainant's consent will be recognized at law is that, quote, the genuine consent of a complainant has traditionally been a defense to almost all forms of criminal responsibility, end quote. Despite the fact that a number of exceptions have been imposed by Parliament and also increasingly by the courts, This principle still underpins Canadian law. Consent is frequently referred to as a defence, as in Jobadin, and can be thought of in that way insofar as it negates liability. On a charge of sexual assault, however, we must remember throughout that the absence of consent is an essential element of the actus reus, and must therefore be proved beyond a reasonable doubt by the Crown. The Chief Justice finds that Parliament has created a statutory exception to the well-established general principle that the complainant's genuine consent precludes a finding of sexual assault. In my colleague's view, the purpose and effect of this perceived exception is to vitiate consent to unconscious sexual activity, that is, sexual contact that is expected to occur while the consenting adult is asleep or unconscious, With respect, nothing in the Criminal Code indicates that Parliament has considered, let alone adopted, an exception of this sort. Section 273.1 sub 1 of the Code defines consent for the purposes of sexual assault provisions as the voluntary agreement of the complainant to engage in the sexual activity in question. Nothing in this definition refers to the timing of consent or otherwise excludes advanced consent to unconscious sexual contact. And it is important to remember that on this appeal, neither the voluntariness nor the specificity of the complainant's consent is an issue before us. On the contrary, as the Court of Appeal found, there is no basis in the evidence to support a finding that the complainant did not freely and consciously consent to the sexual activity in question, erotic asphyxiation involving anal penetration during the contemplated period of transitory unconsciousness, followed by vaginal intercourse. Section 273.1 sub 1 also provides that the definition of consent is subject to two limiting provisions. The first is section 265 sub 3, which applies to all forms of assault and specifies that no consent is obtained where the complainant submits or does not resist by reason of force, threats of force, fraud, or the exercise of authority. Manifestly, none of these statutory exemptions apply here. The second limiting provision, Section 273.1 Sub 2, applies only to sexual assaults and sets out five situations in which no consent is obtained. Only two are relied on by the Crown, section 273.1 sub 2 sub b and section 273.1 sub 2 sub e. Section 273.1 sub 2 sub b provides that no consent is obtained where the complainant is incapable of consenting to the activity. I agree that unconsciousness qualifies as incapacity within the meaning of this provision but it is apparent from the ordinary meaning of the words used by Parliament and from their context that section 273.1 sub 2 sub b has no application here. It simply confirms that consent cannot be obtained from a person who is at the time incapable of consenting. It does not contemplate consent given in advance at a time when the complainant, as is in this case, was capable, not incapable, of giving her free and knowing consent. Section 273.1, sub 2, sub e, the second exemption invoked by the Crown, provides that no consent is obtained where the complainant, having consented to engage in sexual activity, expresses, by words or conduct, a lack of agreement to continue to engage in the activity. The Crown submits, and the Chief Justice accepts, that this provision is inconsistent with the possibility of advanced consent to unconscious sexual touching, because Parliament intended people engaged in sexual activity to have the right to revoke consent at any time during the activity, and a person who has been rendered unconscious cannot revoke her consent. I agree that prior consent to sexual activity can later be revoked, and I agree that a person cannot while unconscious consent or revoke consent. It hardly follows, in my respectful view, that consenting adults cannot, as a matter of law, willingly and consciously agree to engage in a sexual practice involving transitory unconsciousness, on the ground that, during the brief period of that consensually induced mental state, they will be unable to consent to doing what they have already consented to do. If anything, the wording of section 273.1 sub 2 sub e, suggests that the complainant's consent can be given in advance, and remains operative unless and until it is subsequently revoked. It provides that the complainant, having consented to engage in sexual activity, may later revoke his or her consent. I agree with the respondent that the revocation is a question of fact. In this regard, I again mention that the complainant, upon regaining consciousness, did not revoke her prior consent to the sexual conduct in issue which was then still ongoing. And it has not been suggested that she had earlier revoked her consent by words or conduct, or even in her own mind. With respect, there is no factual or legal basis for holding that KD's prior consent, otherwise operative throughout, was temporarily rendered inoperative due to the few minutes of her voluntary unconsciousness. In my view, it was not suspended by the fact that she had rendered herself incapable of revoking the consent she had chosen, freely and consciously, not to revoke either immediately before or immediately after the brief interval of her unconsciousness. Nothing in section 273.1 sub 2 sub e creates a legal requirement, or a binding legal fiction, that warrants convicting the complainant's partner of sexual assault in these circumstances. Finally, the Chief Justice relies on Section 273.2 B, which precludes a defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent where the accused did not take reasonable steps in the circumstances known to the accused at the time to ascertain that the complainant was consenting. The Chief Justice finds that by requiring the accused to take reasonable steps to ensure that the complainant was consenting, Parliament has indicated that the consent of the complainant must be an ongoing state of mind. With respect, I read section 273.2 differently. It provides that a belief in consent is not a defence where the accused believed that the complainant consented to the activity in question and failed to take reasonable steps to ascertain that the complainant was consenting. Any doubt whether was consenting and consented Refer to prior consent, is dispelled by the corresponding French text of the provision. Lest I be misunderstood in this regard, I hasten to add that KD's prior consent to the activity in question constituted a valid consent only to the contemplated activity. In the absence of any evidence that JA's conduct exceeded the scope of KD's consent, I am unable to find in the mentioned provisions of the Criminal Code any basis for concluding that Katie's consent in fact was not a valid consent in law. For the reasons given, I am satisfied that nothing in the criminal code supports the Crown's principal submission, that Katie's consent to the activity in question was vitiated by the fact that she could not consent during her consensually induced unconsciousness to the sexual activity to which she had already consented. In the absence of any language in the Code that supports this proposition, the Crown relies on what, in its view, is the policy underlying the mentioned provisions. This submission is not at all persuasive. First, the provisions in question were enacted to address policy concerns that are entirely different from those before us here. The Preamble to Bill C 49, an act to amend the Criminal Code sexual assault, assented to June 23, 1992 and the parliamentary debates preceding its enactment demonstrate that the consent provisions were intended to protect women from sexual violence and to protect and enhance their freedom to choose when and with whom they engage in sexual relations of their choice. The dominant theme throughout the debate was that women have the right to make decisions about their bodies, including whether or not to engage in sexual activity, and that no in every conceivable circumstance means no. Legislative changes were required to ensure that a woman who previously said yes to sexual activity could subsequently say no and be taken seriously, first by her sexual partner and failing that by the police and the courts. These policy concerns are simply not engaged on the facts before us. This is not a case about a woman who said no at any time. Rather, the complainant described herself as a willing and enthusiastic participant throughout all stages of the sexual activity in question. She consented to the sexual activity leading up to her unconsciousness and to the unconsciousness itself. The Court of Appeal found, as we have seen, that nothing in the record supports a finding that she did not consent to the sexual activity that occurred while she was unconscious. Moreover, We have no idea how long the anal penetration had gone on when she awoke. She may in fact have awoken as soon as it began, but we do know that she did not ask the accused to stop when she was awake and knew exactly what was going on. I am unable to conclude that Parliament, in protecting the right to say no, restricted the right of adults, female or male, consciously and willingly to say yes to sexual conduct in private that neither involves bodily harm nor exceeds the bounds of the consent freely given. The right to make decisions about one's own body clearly comprises both rights. Although this right to choose is not absolute, I agree that private consensual sexual behavior should only give rise to criminal sanctions where there is a compelling principle of fundamental justice that constitutes a reasonable limit on the right to personal and sexual autonomy. I agree as well that it would be a significant limit on the sexual autonomy of each individual to say that, as a matter of law, no one can consent in advance to being sexually touched while asleep or unconscious. Respect for the privacy and sexual autonomy of consenting adults has long been embraced by Parliament as a fundamental social value and an overarching statutory objective. Quote, Keeping the state out of the bedrooms of the nation, end quote, is a legislative policy and not just a political slogan. The approach advocated by the Chief Justice would also result in the criminalization of a broad range of conduct that Parliament cannot have intended to capture in its definition of the offense of sexual assault. Notably, it would criminalize kissing or caressing a sleeping partner, however gently and affectionately. The absence of contemporaneous consent— and therefore the actus reus, would be conclusively established by accepted evidence that the complainant was asleep at the time. Prior consent, or even an explicit request, kiss me before you leave for work, would not spare the accused from conviction. The mens rea would be conclusively established as well. An honest but mistaken belief in consent, however reasonable in the circumstances, would neither preclude prosecution nor bar conviction— If my colleague's view is correct, the accused's error would constitute a mistake of law which cannot avail as a defense. The Crown acknowledges that, on its view of the law, anyone who engages in amorous expressions of affection while his or her partner is asleep would be guilty of sexual assault. In response to the implausibility of the suggestion that Parliament intended to criminalize such conduct, the Crown has identified only two more aptly characterized as palliatives that should give us little comfort. Procedural discretion and the doctrine of de minimis non curat lex, the law is not concerned with trifling matters. As for prosecutorial discretion, I think it is sufficient to recall that this court, in dealing with the delicate issue of nullifying consent at law, has in the past demonstrated a healthy reluctance to endorse the exercise of prosecutorial discretion as a legitimate means of narrowing the applicability of a criminal sanction. And Justice McLaughlin, as she then was, in agreement on this point, made clear that, quote, "...prosecutorial deference cannot compensate for overextension of the criminal law. It merely replaces overbreadth and uncertainty at the judicial level with overbreadth and uncertainty at both the prosecutorial level and the judicial level." End quote. And, as for reliance on the de minimis doctrine, I do not view sexual assault of any kind as a trifling matter. It is a serious crime with serious consequences, both for the complainant and for the accused. I agree with the Chief Justice that even mild non-consensual touching of a sexual nature can have profound implications for the complainant. For public policy reasons, the Ontario Court of Appeal has held that it would be inappropriate to apply this principle in the context of domestic assaults. Finally, even if one accepts that Section 273.1 sub 3 authorizes the courts to identify additional cases in which no consent is obtained, identifying a new exception in this case would go well beyond what Jobadin permits. The Crown, Appeal Justice Left in the court below, and the Chief Justice all rely on Ewan Chuck in support of their view that the law already precludes advanced consent to unconscious sexual contact. First, it is argued that Ewan Chuck establishes that the only relevant time for determining consent is the time at which the sexual contact takes place. This argument is based on Justice Major's comment that the absence of consent is determined by reference to the complainant's subjective internal state of mind towards the touching at the time it occurred. Second, it is argued that one cannot infer an unconscious individual is consenting because there is no defense of implied consent in the law of sexual assault. With respect, I would reject both arguments. The comments made in Chuck must be read in context. Most significantly, the complainant in that case did not consent before, during, or after the sexual touching. In addition, neither incapacity nor the timing of consent were an issue. The requirement of contemporaneity simply signifies that a woman who consents to sexual activity remains free to withdraw her consent at any time, and in the context of this case, that a woman cannot provide her consent while she is unconscious. You and Chuck does not at all establish that a woman cannot consciously and voluntarily consent to sexual activity that will occur while she is unconscious. Nor is the rejection of the defense of implied consent in Iwanchuk dispositive of the issue before us. We are not asked by the respondent to infer the complainant's consent. Her actual subjective consent was established through her own testimony. Ewan Chuck decided that if the complainant testifies that she did not subjectively consent, and she is believed, then the actus reus will be made out regardless of her outward conduct. That is not our case. As we shall presently see, this court has stressed that consent should only be vitiated by judges in limited circumstances and on a case-by-case basis. The broad nullification of consent now proposed by my colleague can hardly be said to have been decided in Iwanchuk, a case in which the possibility of advanced consent to unconscious sexual touching was not even remotely an issue. In Jobaden, this court stressed that, quote, the law's willingness to vitiate consent on policy grounds is significantly limited, end quote. As Justice Gonthier took care to explain, the court's decision in that case was narrowly restricted to situations in which adults intentionally apply force to each other during the course of a fistfight or brawl and seriously hurt or non-trivial bodily harm is both intended and caused. Since Jobuddin was decided, the vitiation of consent on grounds of public policy has been limited to situations in which actual bodily harm was both intended and caused. In the Queen and Pace, the majority of the court insisted that both constraints remain operative. To remove either requirement, the court held, would risk the criminalization, by judicial fiat, of numerous activities that were never intended by Parliament to come within the ambit of the assault provisions. The policy concerns identified by the Crown do not warrant the extension of the significantly limited principle invoked in Jobadin to a situation in which bodily harm was neither intended nor caused. As I have explained, the record before us does not permit us to revisit the issue of bodily harm addressed in the courts below. Our mandate is circumscribed by the question of law before us, which is whether unconsciousness alone is sufficient to nullify consent. Essentially, the Crown urges us to answer that question in the affirmative on three grounds. One, the risk that the unconscious person's consent will be intentionally exceeded. Two, the risk of innocent misunderstandings between the parties as to the scope of the consent. And three, the risk of unjust acquittals where the Crown is unable to prove that the accused did not obtain prior consent from an unconscious person. I am not persuaded, that advanced consent to unconscious sexual activity, if held valid in the circumstances of this case, will increase the risk that an unconscious person's consent will be intentionally exceeded. Intentionally exceeding the scope of the unconscious partner's consent would amount to sexual contact without consent or sexual assault, and for that reason, properly attract criminal liability. Unconscious sex may well involve a risk of innocent misunderstandings between the parties as to the scope of consent. However, this raises issues that are related not to the actus reus of the offence, the only issue before us, but to the defence of honest but mistaken belief in consent. If it is established that the scope of the complainant's consent has been exceeded, then the actus reus will be established and the inquiry will move to whether the accused had the requisite mens rea. Pursuant to section 273.2b of the Code, an accused cannot invoke an honest but mistaken belief in consent in the absence of evidence that he took reasonable steps in the circumstances known to him at the time to ascertain that the complainant was consenting. In cases of unconscious sex, the defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent will be extremely difficult to establish. Since consent cannot be obtained from an unconscious complainant, the required reasonable steps would have to be taken prior to the period of unconsciousness. Relevant factors to the reasonableness assessment might include the proximity and time between the steps taken and the period of unconsciousness and the specificity of the agreement made between the parties. Advanced consent and a clear understanding may well reduce rather than enhance the risk of unwanted sexual conduct. The conscious partner, explicitly appraised, will be at risk of prosecution and conviction if the scope of the unconscious partner's consent is unintentionally exceeded. If the accused's belief in consent was honest but not reasonable, he or she will be guilty of sexual assault. By making the actual subjective consent of a complainant determinative, the law respects her sexual autonomy. At the same time, by restricting the availability of the defense of honest but mistaken belief in the case of complainants who do not consent, the law can ensure that there are criminal consequences for sexually exploiting vulnerable parties. As counsel for the respondent put it to us in oral argument, quote, if the law is going to treat these situations harshly, it should treat them harshly when people get it wrong, not when people get it right, end quote. Finally, the Crown submits that recognizing the legal validity of advanced consent to unconscious sexual touching will create a defense that will be difficult to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt. While refusing to invalidate prior consent may pose some evidentiary difficulties for the Crown, I do not find this argument to be dispositive. First, in order to secure a conviction for sexual assault, the Crown must prove the sexual conduct alleged an essential element of the offense. If it can prove the sexual act by way of forensic evidence or an admission or confession, for example, then it will necessarily be able to prove, through the evidence of the complainant, the required absence of consent to that conduct. Second, the answer to an apprehended evidentiary problem does not lie in an unwarranted extension of the substantive law. If Parliament thinks it necessary to address the evidentiary concern, it may do so by more appropriate means. For example, it can satisfy that perceived need by enacting an evidential presumption of non-consent in favor of the Crown, where it has proved that the accused engaged in sexual contact with an unconscious person. This is the approach taken in the United Kingdom. Section 75 of the Sexual Offenses Act 2003 creates a rebuttable presumption of non-consent where the complainant was asleep or otherwise unconscious. The same presumption is made applicable to other specified situations. One commentator has argued that, quote, the imposition of an evidential presumption in these circumstances is not unreasonable because consent is unlikely to be present and it seems fair rebuttably to presume that it was not, end quote. Conversely, he argues that a conclusive presumption about the absence of consent, where the complainant is asleep or unconscious, would have been draconian. In any event, it is not unduly onerous to require the Crown to disprove advanced consent beyond a reasonable doubt. In most cases, this will be established through the complainant's testimony. The Crown points to the Queen and Ashley as an example of a case in which an unjust acquittal would have been entered because the complainant was not available to testify In my view, the tactical burden on the Crown to call the complainant in a sexual assault case in order to prove the absence of subjective consent, a fact uniquely known to the complainant, should not be easily displaced. Moreover, Ashley does not support the Crown's submission at all, since there was no need in that case to rely on the vitiation of consent doctrine that is said here to be necessary. The absence of consent was evident from the circumstances, and a conviction ensued despite the complainant's absence. For all these reasons, I would affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeal and dismiss the present appeal to this court. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you are able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Radamile. Audio engineering by Anthony Radomile. Graphic design by Julia Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com, And music done by Matt Radomile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.